All right, well, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 13 again this morning. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is the seventh book in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, which is a favorite chapter of many, many people for a good reason, often a wedding uh, passage. But as we've been talking about, uh, it wasn't originally given as a wedding passage, as appropriate as it is for that. It was given to actually encourage believers in this church in Corinth and Greece to love each other because they weren't loving each other as they should. One of the things that I think is important when we think about what's in this chapter is to ask the question, what is your goal in life? What is your goal in your relationships? Uh, many of us would probably say, like a lot of people, well, my goal is to love. And yet, if that really is what we would say, we still have to answer the question, what does that look like? What, what does love look like? Because there are all kinds of love, right? There's romantic love, there's friendship love, there's family love, uh, there's even love for pecan pie and things like that. So there's all kinds of love. And the question, though, is what is the kind of love that God requires of us, that he calls us to, that really is the foundation for all those other kinds of love? And that's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13, because we live in a day where the phrase is often said, love is love, which implies that all loves are the same. They're all equal. They're equal in terms of quality, equal in terms of being accepted and approved and those kinds of things. And yet, the reality is, God says there's a certain kind of love that he requires because the Bible says God himself is love. And so he requires us to image him. He made us in his image. So he created us to love like he loves. And therefore, what Paul is talking about here and talking to the Corinthians is basically trying to help them see what that kind of love looks like in their relationships. One of the great things about the Bible is that it tells us what God is like. And it shows us what God is like, because we can't see God, but he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians 13, what we see is we actually see what Jesus was like when he was on earth. Because it's a picture of what love should look like in a fallen world when everybody isn't treating you well when everybody isn't doing everything that they should do. And Jesus loved perfectly. So that's what we should see, first of all, in this passage, is we should see a picture of Jesus, how he really interacted with people, and how he calls us to interact with people, too. Secondly, it should be very convicting. And that's why I'm taking time just to work through this, because we can read through it very quickly and think, oh, that's so sweet, that's so pretty, you know, I can do that. But then when you really think about what's being said and what we're called to do, it actually shows us how far short we fall of the glory of God and how much we need a Savior to be forgiven for our lack of love for God and love for others. And then thirdly, it helps us to see how much, even as Christians who are forgiven, how much we need the Holy Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. We need God to enable us to love like God loves. We can't do that on our own. And so 
We're going to continue talking about what love looks like, and hopefully it will encourage us to see Jesus this way. It will encourage us to see our own need for a Savior, and it will encourage us to call on God for the help we need to love like this in all of our relationships, whether it's marriage, with our kids, with our parents, with our co-workers, or whoever it might be. So let me read for us again uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and follow along with me if you have access to a Bible. It says in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Is the word of God. And so um, let me just remind you of what we talked about last week. We talked about patience and kindness and, and jealousy last week. And just as a quick review, I want to remind you of what we talked about because it is very important for the rest of these other characteristics that we're going to talk about. Patience is, you could say, the platform of love. The word patience there means long-tempered or long-suffering, which implies that you can't love like God loves unless you're willing to put up with a lot from the person that you're loving. Put up with sin, put up with failure, put up with them not loving you back as they should. And that's why we talked about Abraham kicking the old man out of the tent when he found out that he didn't worship God, but he worshiped fire. And we have to ask the question of ourselves, how quick am I to kick people out of my tent, kick people out of my life when they aren't what I want them to be? So patience is basically a call to not give people what they deserve or what we think they deserve, but actually to love them in spite of their sin and their failure. Second thing we talked about is sort of the opposite side of the coin of patience patience and kindness go together kindness is kind of the um the shovel of love shovel is a instrument of work and kindness is very much about work doing good to other people so that 
in order to do good to people, I have to hang in there. I have to stay with them. I can't kick them out of my tent and still do them good. I have to continue to be patient with them in order to be in relationship with them to continue doing them good. And so we talked about Abraham Lincoln and how he was kind to a man named Stanton who opposed him in his administration and called him a gorilla, and yet he promoted him in his administration. He was kind to him in spite of that lack of love for Lincoln. And so the idea of kindness is to do good to others regardless of how they treat you or how you or how they treat someone you love either either way and then he moves from that to talk about jealousy and jealousy is sort of um, the thing that undermines kindness in the sense that it can cause us to not really pursue the happiness of others because that's what kindness is about that's what love is about it's actually wanting the happiness of others and pursuing the happiness of others but jealousy is all about my happiness it's all about wanting what other people have because i feel like i need it so that i can be happy and not wanting what other and really not wanting other people to be happy because my happiness is found in their lack of happiness that's what the word jealousy means it's kind of a twofold thing where in one sense it wants what other people have to be privately happy in another sense it wants to take away the happiness of of others and that's why we talked about the two shopkeepers that were operating uh, on opposite sides of the street this one shopkeeper was approached by this angel and said so if uh if i could give you anything and your fellow shopkeeper would get twice of what you get, what would you like? And the shopkeeper said, I'd like to lose my sight in one eye so that he would lose his sight in both eyes. That's the jealousy that says, I want the happiness you have and I don't want you to be happy. I don't care about your happiness. So it undermines both kindness and patience. And so the idea of jealousy or not being jealous here is that we shouldn't be unhappy that others have what we don't have, but we should be happy for the happiness of others. And there's a great illustration of this in the Bible when Jesus is beginning his ministry and people who were following John the Baptist began to follow Jesus. And the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and say, hey, aren't you a little bothered by the fact that everybody's beginning to follow Jesus and not following you? And he says, no, I'm not bothered by that at all because I'm like the best man at a wedding. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. The best man at a wedding is happy for the guy getting married. His joy is in the happiness of the groom. And therefore, how can I be unhappy with his happiness? And that's what jealousy undermines and that's why love says that we can't be jealous otherwise we won't want the happiness of others well that brings us to the next thing that paul says in this chapter in verse four when he says love does not brag and so he highlights the fact that what we think about ourselves and what we say about ourselves can actually either hinder or help 
loving other people. Um, here he talks about love is not bragging, is not arrogant. The bragging part is the outward part of pride. Uh, the arrogance is the inward part of pride. So let's look or think a minute about the outward part. Talking about bragging, the, the idea of bragging there is about being a windbag. That's what it literally means, a windbag or a braggart, that kind of thing. And there's a story about this frog and these two ducks that were living in this farm pond. And the, they were great friends, but as the summer went along, the pond began to dry up and they realized they needed to move, which is okay for the ducks because they could easily fly someplace else, but the frog couldn't. So they came up with this plan to put a stick in the mouths of the two ducks and for the frog to grab on with his mouth and they were going to fly the frog uh, and themselves to another pond. Well, they're flying along and everything's going great and a farmer looks up and notices that. And he says, well, isn't that a clever idea? I wonder who thought of it. And immediately the frog said, I did. Which was his downfall at that point. And the idea is that in bragging about ourselves and speaking about ourselves in a way that is meant to elevate ourselves, we have to ask the question, does that really foster love for other people? Does it make them feel loved? Does it actually cause us to think about our love for them? Or does it simply focus our mind on ourselves? And I think you know what the answer is to that. Um, Matthew Henry said, Love abhors falsehood and flattery, whether it's flattery of other people or flattery of ourselves. And that's what bragging is. And so... The idea here is the idea of basically lifting up ourselves or puffing up ourselves. And it says if we want to really love people like God loves people, we shouldn't live up our, lift up ourselves for all to see, but we would, should seek to lift up others instead. It's interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of talk these days with all that's going on in our country about are we in the end times? You know, is... Is uh, the Antichrist going to appear on the scene pretty soon? And is Jesus going to come back? And all those kinds of things. Well, if you look at what the Bible says in Revelation 13 about the beast that comes from the sea, which many people believe is a picture of the Antichrist, the the man who's going to rise up one day to rule the world in defiance of Christ. If you look at the description of him, you find that it says... a. He was given a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God. And so it says that the dragon or the devil who's represented by the dragon gives him power. And the result, at least one result of that, is that he begins to boast about himself. And so it's cause for pause for us to think about the connection between um, bragging about ourselves, lifting up ourselves in the eyes of others, and how that is connected to really a devilish kind of idea. And it's something that undermines true love. And yet what I've tried to do is to bring all of these things back to the idea of if God is love, how is God not a braggart? How does God not brag? And I think one way we can think about that is it says in Isaiah 66, 
Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. When I think about that, I think about what is God saying there when he says, this is the person I look to, this is the person that I would say is living the way that reflects me. And he actually says that someone who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. What does tremble at his word mean? It means that whatever God says, he receives. And so the implication, I think, for God, obviously there are differences between us and God, great differences between us and God, but one of the links is it is not boasting to speak the truth. It's not boasting for God to say, you can't build a house big enough for me to live in because I'm infinite, I'm eternal. Um, It's not boasting for God to tell us about how powerful he is or how loving he is or how merciful he is. That's not boasting if you're speaking the truth. And so to be like God is to speak the truth about ourselves and about others and not to exaggerate that truth, not to, to say things that aren't really true. That's why in Proverbs it says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. In 1 Corinthians earlier in the book, it says, if, um, if you did receive what you have, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so one way to think about this whole issue of not bragging is to think about it in terms of an elevator. Elevators lift people up and elevators bring people down. And the question is, in my relationship with people and the way I talk, do I tend to lift myself up and thereby bring others down? Or do I lift people up and in my own eyes appropriately bring myself down? What, what kind of communication is coming out of my mouth? Am I more like the frog who fell and lost his life when he opened his mouth to boast? Or am I more like what God calls me to be, which is basically to say whatever he says is true of me and of others. It's very tempting for us when we're insecure and we feel like we need the approval of others to somehow focus on ourselves and to try to get them to affirm how wonderful we are. When basically God calls us to trust him for the love we need, for the acceptance we need, for the security that we need, Because ultimately, most people would say, if I'm in the presence of someone who's just continually trying to lift himself up in our eyes, the natural result of that is the putting down of other people, which isn't a very loving thing to do. And so in my communication, I have to ask myself, am I seeking to lift myself up or am I seeking to lift up others to encourage them? Uh, to lift up them when they're downcast and discouraged? Uh, Am I using my words to do that? But closely related to that, obviously, is the issue of arrogance because the bragging part is the outward part that's easy to see. The arrogant part is not easy to see. You can be arrogant and nobody can know it. In fact, many people are arrogant and don't even acknowledge it in their own hearts and lives. 
And so Paul moves to talking about the fact that love is not arrogant. And there's a story about this young lady who scheduled a, an appointment with her pastor and said, I need to talk to you, pastor, about um, a besetting sin that I have. And they finally get together and the pastor says, well, Mary, what's the problem? And she says, you know, uh, every time I walk into church, I look around and I realize that compared to everybody else here, I, I'm the most beautiful woman, woman in the place. There's nobody that compares to me. And I'm just afflicted with this realization. Can you help me, pastor? And so he looks at her and he thinks a second and he says, you know, Mary, I just want you to know, first of all, that's not a sin. That's just a terrible mistake. (laughs) Basically highlighting the fact that, Mary, uh, your problem is that your perception of yourself is terribly wrong. But she didn't know that. And that's the way all of us are. All of us are like Mary. Our perception of ourselves naturally is terribly wrong. We think so much more of ourselves than we ought to. The word for arrogant here is the word for puffed up uh, or bloated. Like um, Matthew Henry said, uh, true love is not bloated with self-conceit. It's not puffed up. It's not an exaggerated view of yourself. And that's why... In order to love, I have to fight an inflated opinion of myself, an exaggerated opinion of myself, and actually believe what God says about me. Because humility is not believing the worst I can think about myself. Humility is simply believing what God says is true about me and about others. That's humility. There's another passage in Ezekiel chapter 28 that's talking about the king of Tyre. And in that passage, it's talking about how he had a heart that was lifted up. And he thought about himself as a godlike figure. He thought that he was wiser than anybody else and more powerful and greater than anybody else. And God tells him, because your heart is lifted up, uh, and which is because of your riches and things like that, that he was going to actually bring judgment on him and his kingdom. But in the midst of that talk, you begin to realize that God not only talks about the king of Tyre, but he begins to talk about the origin of Satan. Because he talks in a way that lets you know that um, the king of Tyre kind of represents Satan in the sense that Satan originally, it says, God says, you had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers your blameless in your ways until unrighteousness was found in you. And it goes on to say, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Just like Mary. Your heart was lifted up, Satan. You thought you were great and wonderful. Therefore, you rebelled against God. King of Tyre is the same way. And so... Being puffed up, having an exaggerated view of ourselves, keeps us from loving God, keeps us from loving others. The question is, if God is love, how is God not puffed up? Well, it's interesting. In Matthew 11, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God the Son, he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Can God be humble? Yes, he is humble. Does God think little of himself? No, he doesn't. That's not not what it means to be humble. What it means to be humble, again, as I said, is to think rightly about yourself. Now, if you ought to think little of yourself by thinking rightly, then yes, you should think little of yourself. But if the truth is you're grand and glorious like God is, then humility in God and humility in Jesus is to actually just believe what is true. And that's a huge principle because a lot of people will think that humility is just thinking the worst of yourself. Humility is actually saying whatever God says is true. And that's important because Jesus links gentleness and humility. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart, which means my perception of myself translates into how I treat people. I will be more gentle to others the more humble I am. The more that I see myself as God says I truly am, the more gentle and kind and tender and loving I will be to others. And so God doesn't think too highly of himself, but he thinks rightly about himself, and he's actually more tender than we will ever be. He's more compassionate and loving and merciful than we will ever be. He's infinitely so. So for us... To be like God, it says in Romans 12, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Paul doesn't say, think as little of yourself as you can. He simply says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. It says in James, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you think about the idea of arrogance, it's basically the idea, it's the picture of being so inflated that you're like a bounce house in a tiny yard that is so big and so inflated that there's no room for anybody to get into the yard. There's no room for people in your life because it's all about you. It's all about what you want. It's all about your ambitions and your goals and your happiness. So Pride puffs us up so that there's really no room in our lives, no real practical heartfelt room in our lives for other people when that is truly the case. And so God calls us to confess that and resist that. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we ever like the woman who assesses her beauty and is convinced that no one compares to her when she could not be more mistaken? Do we tend to look down on other people, even if we never voice it? We never say it, but we think it all the time. Um, Do we wonder how other people could do certain things or be certain ways? Because we can't imagine ourselves ever doing that or being that way. Are we privately happy that we're not like other people? Or do you look, instead of looking down on people, do, do you look around you and say, wow, we're in a... We're a mess, aren't we? 
aren't we? Uh, you have that problem and I have that same problem in some form or another. Uh, do you recognize yourself as the chief of sinners just like Paul did and just like we all should? Do you recognize that you're not beyond saying or doing anything? None of us are beyond saying or doing anything. And obviously, do you see a desperate need for a savior as a result? And so that's what Paul is getting at, is that we desperately need humility inwardly and outwardly in order to truly make room for those around us that are imperfect and sinful and failing just like we are. Well, he goes on and he talks about love does not act unbecomingly, which is an interesting word. Um, Paul follows this discussion of pride with a discussion of behavior, which is interesting in light of the fact that in our day we have pride marches, which are celebrating a certain kind of behavior that the Bible actually calls unbecoming. Um, there was a columnist um, who had a friend um, and they went one morning to get a newspaper back when people actually read newspapers. And they rent, went down and they found this guy in this little cubby hole who was selling newspapers. And so it's a guy named Sidney and a guy named George. And George uh, says to the newspaper guy, could I have the late edition of this paper and the man was very gruff with him very rude uh, found the edition he was looking for and kind of shoved it in his face and all along George was very polite he smiled he was courteous and uh, he wished the newsman a pleasant weekend and um, Sydney and George they walk off they leave this uh, news guy who seemed to be so glad that they were gone and they're talking about what happened. And uh, Sidney asked, does he always treat you so rudely? And George says, yes, unfortunately he does. And uh, Sidney says, and are you always so kind and friendly to him? And George says, yes, yeah, I am. And Sidney says, why are you so nice when he is so unfriendly to you? George thought about it for a minute and he said, because I don't want him to decide how I'm going to act. Which is food for thought. But the picture there is a picture of one person who's committed to showing kindness and courtesy to someone regardless of what they're doing in return. And the word for unbecomingly, that love does not act becomingly, is one of those interesting words that is very broad. It's a very, very broad word. And it's so broad that in some contexts it could refer to, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, um, a man who's acting inappropriately toward um, his virgin, which could be someone he's engaged to, depending on how you understand that passage. Um, in Romans 1, it's used with regard to men with men committing indecent acts. In Romans, excuse me, Revelation 16, it talks about those who walk about naked and men will not see their shame. 
Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about our less presentable parts. So in one sense, it seems to be talking about, when this word is used, about doing things that are inappropriate morally with regard to uh, decency, whether decency in the eyes of God or decency in the eyes of men. But it also seems to be talking about things as simple as doing what is inappropriate with regard to manners, that we should not either be involved in behaviors that are inappropriate with regard to moral decency issues, neither should we do what is inappropriate with regard to common manners toward people. Um, And that's why you've got um, Matthew Henry saying, it, love, does nothing out of place or time, but behaves with courtesy and goodwill towards all men. And that's why if you have the ESV version, or maybe another version, it's not translated unbecomingly, it's translated rude. Love is not rude. Because the basic idea is it doesn't do what's inappropriate, whether in terms of manners or in terms of morals. So it's a very broad term, but it includes all of that. And so that's why some could say that love observes appropriate courtesies. So one way to kind of summarize all that is to say, if we're going to love like God loves, we shouldn't ignore standards of decorum and decency, but we should put on proper courtesies and clothing and conduct. Um, It's all kinds of ways to talk about this, but think about this. Think about Ecclesiastes 3. Remembering that Matthew Henry talked about the fact that love knows how to act in each particular time and each particular place. Ecclesiastes says there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Which is saying that there is an appropriate time for certain behaviors, actions, ultimately, love is always supposed to be a part of that. And yet love can look different in different times, in different places. It can look different in light of what God calls us to do or not do. It can actually look different in terms of what society says should or shouldn't be done. There is a place for asking ourselves if my behavior will unnecessarily offend someone. There is a place for that. Now, if what God calls me to do offends someone, that's a different thing. But if I can do what God calls me to do and still be conscious of what might offend someone, I should do that. Because if you look, for instance, in Matthew 17, thinking again 
about whether or not God does this. Um, In Matthew 17, Jesus is talking with Peter about a tax that they were requiring. And Jesus says, um, typically do uh, citizens pay this tax or do strangers pay this tax? And Peter said, usually strangers. Sons are exempt. And the implication was, Jesus was saying, I'm a son that should not have to pay this tax. But he says, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And that fish's mouth will be a coin. Give it to them, the tax collectors, for you and for me. So there was a place for Jesus to say, you know what, I don't really have to do this but that we might not unnecessarily offend them, we're going to do this. And that means there's a place for asking, what does God require? And what does, in a sense, love require in terms of sensitivity to even things like custom and people's expectations in a particular society? There is a place for those kinds of things because God never offends selfishly, or unnecessarily. And we should make it our goal to never offend or dishonor others sinfully or selfishly or unnecessarily. Paul talks about this dynamic when he was collecting some money to take to the church in Jerusalem. And he was collecting money from all the Gentile churches. What he says is, he says, we take precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Think about that. We think about what is honorable in the sight of the Lord, but also what's honorable in the sight of men. Now, when there's a conflict between honoring the Lord and honoring men, we honor the Lord and we dishonor men. But when there's not a conflict, both of those things should be part of our consideration in terms of love. And that's what Paul is talking about, both honoring the Lord and doing what's honorable in the sight of men. There's an interesting story in Luke 7 where Jesus goes to eat with this Pharisee. And at one point, uh, this woman comes in and is washing Jesus' feet with her tears and anointing his feet and kissing his feet and The Pharisee looks at Jesus and says, you know, at least in his mind, if Jesus was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of bad woman this is and he he wouldn't let her touch him. And that's when Jesus says, you know, can I ask you a question? And um, basically, you know, if, if this man owed this person one amount of money and another man owed the same person another amount of money and one amount was greater than the other and the man forgave both of those debts, which person would love that man more well Pharisee said well I guess whichever debt was greater and Jesus says interestingly enough he says you know when I got here uh, you didn't give me any water to wash my feet and that day and time they walked around in sandals and their feet got dirty and it was custom to give people water to wash their feet when they came to your house he says you didn't anoint my head with oil which was another kind of greeting basically he said You didn't show me common courtesies when I came to your house. And yet this woman has shown me greater love. He's saying, you didn't love me by showing me common courtesy. But she has gone far beyond 
in showing me love. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we ever like the newspaper stand man, responding rudely and dishonoring others? Do we disregard common courtesies? Because maybe they're not showing us common courtesy. Or do we seek to truly be courteous, kind, respectful, honoring to everyone? And ultimately to God too in terms of what he calls us to do and be in love. Well, there's so much more about that that I can say. But let me wrap up these last few minutes and talk about the question, what if I find myself hearing all of this and saying, yeah, I fall short. In fact, I can think about interactions this week where I was very proud either outwardly or inwardly. I can think where I wasn't so kind and respectful and courteous and patient and loving and kind and all those things in various situations, either outwardly or inwardly in my heart. And so we start there and we basically say, it just highlights the fact that we're all in the same boat. None of us love this way. None of us love perfectly like God loves, 24-7 in every relationship, in every situation. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Every sin deserves death. Every sin deserves hell. But God in his mercy has provided a savior. And that's why Jesus came. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so we all should be convicted of the fact that, yeah, we don't love like this. We don't love God like we should. We don't reflect God like we should. God made us to image him, and we don't image him like we should. And that's a problem, because the Bible says God is a just God, and every sin will be appropriately punished, appropriately judged. But God is also so merciful, and that's where the gospel comes in. That's why we're Christians. We're not Christians because we think we're better than other people. We're Christians because we believe Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. So that we don't look down on other people. We actually identify with other people. And we seek to point them to the only way of forgiveness. But that is the basis for living my life. That I live my life with that understanding. That I need a Savior and so does everybody else. And therefore it helps to keep me from being proud and looking down on others and actually failing to be patient and kind with them. And so that I rest in what Jesus has done, I believe that God loves me perfectly and will always love me perfectly because of what Jesus has done. And then I seek to do what God tells me love looks like. When people offend me, the Bible says love looks like forgiveness. When people don't love me back, Bible says love looks like loving them anyway. And that's what I seek to do, calling on God to give me the grace to do it. And that's what we're called to do as Christians, is to believe the love of God. I'll just close with this passage. In 1 John it says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. 
God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us which means I cannot love this way without actually seeing God's love for me in Jesus, receiving that love, believing in that love, and resting in that love. That's meant to free me from demanding the love of others. If I believe God loves me and loves me perfectly and fully and forever, then it frees me from demanding that other people love me. That's why the truth sets us free. That's why God's love for us in Jesus is crucial to us loving others as he has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you are love, that we know love by looking at you and your character and what you've revealed in your word, We know what true love really looks like, the love that you call us to, by looking especially at the cross and how Jesus laid down his life for those who hated him. We thank you that we look at your word and we see what love looks like on a daily basis with other sinners and with other people who fail just like we do. And we see what it looks like to love and we pray, Father, for, for ourselves, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us here that if there's anyone who isn't trusting in you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and their Savior, that you would help them to see their need, their sin, their failure to love, and help them to see that you lovingly offer forgiveness and eternal life. And I pray that they would receive it even this day by calling on you for mercy in their heart and looking to Jesus as an able and willing Savior. And for those of us who've already done that, we pray that you would help us to see the high calling of being like you more and more, of loving like you love more and more in all of our relationships. And may it cause us to call upon you moment by moment, day by day, for the grace and wisdom and enabling we need to ask you for the Holy Spirit to enable us to love this way more and more for the glory of your great name and for the good of those around us. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we bless you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.